Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Welcome to the drawing room, a space for intimate and surprising conversations. I'm Andy Park. What does it take to fight back against the community that you are raised in when you know that what they're doing is wrong? Founded in an isolated part of New Zealand at the end of the 1960s by an Australian preacher, the Gloria Vale Christian community is home to around five or 600 people. But this is no ordinary community. It's led by a small group of shepherds, members are isolated from outside society, and excommunication means exile from the community and your own family. Allegations of exploitation, sexual abuse, corruption and human rights violations have led to multiple lawsuits against the community, which at this point remains a registered charity. A new documentary titled simply Gloria Vale introduces us to the community and the people fighting back against it. Fergus Grady is the film's co-director alongside Australian Noel Smith and Fergus is my guest in the drawing room. Welcome to you. Come on in and take a seat, Fergus. Thanks, Andy. Good to be with you. How did you get introduced to Gloria Vale and how did that lead to what ended up being years of filming and eventually this documentary? Well, growing up in New Zealand, I guess there's always been a kind of interest in the isolated community on the West Coast. And it wasn't until a few years ago that one of our TV broadcast um, stations produced a, a reality kind of, I would like to call it light entertainment show about Gloria Vale that really sparked the public's interest in, in the commune. And then from there, there's just been intense, intense scrutiny about what goes on inside. And yeah, two years, it took us to really meet the key characters in the film. So hang on, there was a reality show that was made with the Gloria Vale Shepherd's kind of consent? Yeah, well, I, I don't really want to say it's propaganda, but they certainly got, gave the filmmakers access to what they wanted to show the wider public of New Zealand. And it became a bit of a, a cult, so to speak, uh, TV show in New Zealand. It's one of the most watched TV shows in New Zealand. And a lot of people dress up in Halloween costumes like the Gloria Vale residents, which I think is a sad indictment on 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 the wider public perception of of the community. So let's go back to the start of this community. Where, where did it all begin, and who was this Australian preacher? Neville Cooper, uh, as he was previously known, arrived in New Zealand in the late fifties and set up a sort of a hippie commune outside of Christchurch in the South Island uh, near Cust, North Canterbury. And as the community grew, they became the Cooperites um, after his last name. And then at some point along the way, he, he decided to uh, change his name to Hopeful Christian uh, along, the, along with the rest of the community who changed all their first and second names to to very biblical, aspirational names, um, what they hoped to be as Christians. And then in the mid-90s, they moved across to the Halpuri Valley, just outside of Greymouth, which is one of the most isolated parts of New Zealand. 
This is a familiar refrain. Certainly we've heard this from, you know, these sorts of family communities in the United States. What starts out as a relatively benign commune or or communities with individuals seeking freedom suddenly turns into something else. So so when did that start? Was the move to that isolated area of New Zealand that began those freedoms being stripped away by the members? Yeah, in the film we follow three central characters who are in the same family, uh, two children and a mother. And the mother, Sharon Reddy, talks to her experience having moved into the community at age 16 and having all the freedoms of dress and money and their own houses. Um, But along the way, the decision was made to strip all those rights and freedoms away from the community. And I guess um, the control started from there. And uh, yeah, in the mid-90s, they moved to this very, very isolated, picturesque valley um, in New Zealand. And to this day, there's still no cell phone mobile reception in, in the area. I've got to say, in the documentary, you really capture the stillness and isolation of that part of New Zealand. It's sort of beautiful and eerie at the same time. So what were you told that an average day uh, was like for the people living in Gloria Vale? Well, it's split into sort of two communities. You have the, the women inside the community who, I guess, work on what's called the teams. They run the household and sort of kitchen chores, if you want to call it that. Although I don't want to use the word chore because they technically are I believe, employees of this community. Um, So the women start their day from anywhere from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. preparing the meal, uh, breakfast meal, and then throughout the day they, you know, prepare meals, cook, um, clean, and and generally do do the laundry. So they're on a rotation of you know, kitchen one day, laundry one day, and cleaning another day. And they don't really get a day off except for Sunday, which is their sort of day of rest, or they spend a lot of time in church on, on Sunday. And these are people yeah. crammed into houses together, aren't they, without, it seems, a lot of comfort. But the business around the community is worth tens of millions of dollars. How can that be? Well, that's the main question that we wanted to ask in the in the documentary. And What's been asked in court at the moment is a live court case that we refer to in the film that is halfway through its six-week deliberation. And, you know, these people who live in in deep servitude and and, in small cramped uh, hostels um, have, I think it's something like $24 spent on them a week. That's the per average cost per week of each resident. And at the same time, uh, they're a registered charity, their annual turnovers, um, 20 million plus, and we believe their assets are somewhere in the 50 to $60 million range. So it raises a lot of questions, hence why we were interested in, in the Reddy family story. Yeah. So tell me about John Reddy. Tell me about his introduction to Gloria Vale and his rather rapid ejection from it. John was born uh, inside Gloria Vale or just in the northern uh, Canterbury region where they originally started and then they moved over. And John was married to Purity 
and they have 12 children. Um, so that's a common size for the families in Gloriaville. They start, I guess, um, you know, bringing children to this world at, at age 18. Um, if you were 20, that seems quite old for the community. So John's in his, in his early 40s with 12 children. And John one day questioned the leadership about the biblical teachings inside. And that led to his excommunication or being kicked out. Um, did, did he even question the teachings? Wasn't he just found with material that was not deemed to be appropriate for the Gloria Vale members? Well, yeah, pretty much. He was found with this material and then upon being questioned by sort of the 16 leaders, uh, he he questioned why why the Gloria Vale residents weren't given access to to other information or, or biblical readings. So he had a lot of questions. They didn't have a lot um, of time for John, and he was isolated from his wife and, and children for two years and five months, I think, when we started filming. A human rights investigator you talk to calls what's happening there basically slavery. And over the decades, there's been multiple people that have lodged complaints. But it seems like there's not much done by the New Zealand authorities, either police or government. Why is that? How do you account for that lack of action from authorities? It's it's a, it's a tricky question because there's been so many red flags throughout the period that, that Neville Cooper has been was in control, as well as the fact that there are so many um, breaches of New Zealand law that happen inside Gloriaville. However, what what's become apparent is that the Gloriaville have so much control over their residents that not many of the residents are able to testify against the community. So there's so much pressure put upon residents to conform to be in servitude that, that there aren't that many key witnesses to bring any of these these human rights or you know employment right problems or or breaches of New Zealand law to the courts until now where we've got a number of plaintiffs and witnesses who are living outside of the community who have got a voice or have found a voice. Which sort of brings us to the lawyers who are collecting these plaintiffs' stories. They are a big part of your documentary. Was their path to the story similar to your own? They've heard about it in popular culture in New Zealand, in the media, in several instances, but then it sort of dawns on them really about the true extent of life for people living in Gloria Vale. Yeah, I think the lawyers came to the story similar to us where John... Um, upon being excommunicated, had reached out to the media and to a number of law firms asking for help. And one particular human rights lawyer, Steve Patterson, um, who drives the narrative of the film, um, approached us to to meet John and to see whether we thought there was a, a strong story that the wider public in the world need, needed to know about. On ABCRN, I'm Andy Park. Fergus Grady is my guest in the drawing room tonight. We're talking about his documentary, Gloria Vale. Do you see the people in this documentary as subjects or collaborators? It's a really sort of key, interesting question, certainly in this modern age of documentary making where the, the kind of concern over exploitation and the kind of echoes of the story uh, really kind of come back to the participants themselves. I mean, we had a number of collaborators, I should sort of 
mention that my co-director, Noel Smith, is Melbourne-based director. Between the two of us, we sort of tag teamed in, in making this film during Melbourne lockdowns and Auckland lockdowns where I would often head down to the South Island um, to film when Noel couldn't, when he was in a Melbourne lockdown. So not only have Noel and I collaborated, but with John, his sister Virginia and his mother Sharon, um, we've spent countless countless hours sitting down and going through their witness statements and their life um, and recounting some of that trauma, which is, is harrowing, but I think um, having seen how strong and how beautifully their, their, their personalities have grown through the process, um, I think it's been a really rewarding film and, and project for everyone. The documentary has some home videos and audio recordings from within the community. Are you able to share how you got those and was there a risk to the people who were recording them? Uh, there's always risk because the, I guess, the location where the, the home videos were shot were on the property. However, we had a lot of advice, a lot of legal advice, and the family um, footage is in the possession and is owned by the Reddy family. So we were very lucky that the story was contained following these three main characters. And so Noel was actually in the South Island during one of the opportunities for him to get across and mentioned um, that we were looking for some home video. And Virginia um, said that her dad, who's not in the film, um, had had recorded quite a lot of their youth um, through the Glory Vale video camera, the, the camera that Hopeful Christian owned. So we, yeah, we were able to extract a lot of that and it's, yeah, pretty incredible stuff. I and mean, that's for us has made the film possible. Oh, it's absolutely key. I mean, your eyes must have lit up when you found out that there was this material to really share, uh, you know, things like the clothing and just the sort of average everyday lifestyles of those still living there. You mentioned that the testimony of John, Virginia and Sharon, you know, these members and former members of the community, and, and that it was very harrowing times listening to their testimony. What was it like for you to take on this story yourself? I imagine it's a fair bit to be immersed in, especially as you were working in isolation with your collaborator, collaborator locked down in Melbourne. Yeah, well, I don't um, claim to be a Christian or have any religious affiliation, but I guess having known a little bit about this sort of fundamentalist faith-based community, I didn't I didn't fully comprehend how brainwashed and how indoctrinated they were in in another world. They, they had no concepts. If they were born in in the community, they had no concept of what was happening outside of the gates of the property, let alone any news or current affairs in the world. So just seeing the, the predatory behaviour um, from the leadership and how they manipulated these people and sort of wasted and ruined a lot of their lives was really difficult. Um, but having sat with John and Virginia and Sharon, they are such humble and and really patient people and they gave us so much so much of their time and I think they're really proud of what we achieved with the film and it is harrowing but I think their stories um, and their sort of future will only get better um, with with this film and, and what they're doing in the New Zealand courts at the moment.
The thing about being exiled from this community and, and is, you know, and watching the film, it seems like it's not just about losing contact with your family, but it's also facing up to what you'd been party to or perhaps hadn't stopped or had witnessed, even if you hadn't done anything wrong yourself. Yeah, we heard countless stories of um, sexual abuse and how family members wouldn't testify against their own daughters or siblings or cousins or aunties or uncles because they were just in fear. They live they live in fear. They don't want to speak out. They don't want to speak against the community that they've given everything to. And so this perpetual abuse cycle c- continues until at some point someone needs to do something. So the film has this legal backbone that that drives the narrative through um, what's going on because it's quite complex. There are at present seven legal cases uh, going at any one time right now. I was going to ask about that because it's there's a ten month gap in the film while you wait uh, for the outcome of court proceedings to progress. How does that affect you as the filmmaker here? Because. I mean, there's no clear ending to a story like this unless there's some wonderful uh, uh, victory at the end of these court cases, and who knows when that would be. Yeah, the two hardest parts uh, or the obstacles for the film were, one, that we didn't have access to the Gloryvale community to interview anyone on the property, and the second part was trying to navigate uh, not only one live legal case but multiple and the amount of suppression orders that we had to try and um, bypass and not speak directly to what what was actually going on in court. So, and as well, we needed to release the film this year to keep it relevant to what we've been following the last two years because it had moved on so quickly. Even now, we're on the girls' uh, employment case, um, but we were able to, if if the listeners are able to see the film, reveal a, a victory for the Glory Vale ex-residents, John and and a couple of his relatives, um, which was a win. But, yeah, we could have waited years. And and as you said, there's potentially no outcome that we could talk to with all the suppression orders um, for, for the filmmaking process. Yeah, well, at some point, I suppose, you have to put the film out into the world when so much is still uncertain. Fergus, this is remarkable work, remarkable documentary work about such a sensitive and and serious uh, real-life story. Congratulations on this film, and thanks so much for being my guest tonight. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate you having me on. Fergus Grady has been my guest in the drawing room. Gloria Vale is screening as part of the Adelaide Film Festival and will then be released nationally in select cinemas. And if this conversation has raised any issues for you and you need someone to talk to, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.